0: Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors on our teaching team, and I lead our student ministries. And I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for joining us in week two of this series iconic. But before I dive in, I just want to take a moment and just thank the men and women in this room who have served in our military. Thank you guys.) We, we just hope and pray you had a blessed uh, and just felt honored on Veterans Day. We're, we're really privileged by your service. Uh, the second thing I wanted to, to highlight, because I just need to feel it out in the room, uh, can you raise your hand if you uh, decorate for Christmas before Thanksgiving? Are you one of the, the faithful few? Uh, raise your hand if you're, you are someone who's like religious, nope, not until the day after Thanksgiving are we allowed to decorate. All right. Well, uh, my house was done being decorated for Christmas on November 2nd. So, (laughs) but I do want to highlight something just, uh, for me, normally that wouldn't have been my preference. I'd, I'd, I would have liked to wait a little bit longer, but I have a three-year-old who's incredibly convincing. So, so the moment she was like, can we start decorating for Christmas? I was like, yeah, let's do it. And next year she's going to ask me in July. So, all right, hey, well, like I said, we're in week two of the series Iconic, and uh, Danny launched it last week, and Iconic is a series teaching about the power of redeeming the symbols of our world to point to the beauty of the gospel, now, for generations, the church has redeemed the things and pictures of the world instead of alienating and condemning them, teaching that certain aspects of culture can be redeemed for worship. Now, I use the word certain there importantly because uh, not all aspects can be redeemed, but part of the wisdom of the church is to step into the gap and say which, which pictures, which symbols can be redeemed and which can't. And last week, Danny taught about how the apostle Paul uh, in Areopagus was able to, to step into a place of building a bridge and using pictures and icons as a a, a bridge by which he can express the gospel. Uh, Fancy scholars call it gospel contextualization. The point is, is people can't hear the words of the gospel without seeing them lived out first. And so, I want to show you how Paul does it in a completely different uh, scenario in his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, Paul has already begun to dialogue with the Corinthian church on how do they navigate uh, idolatry in their city. The city of Corinth was world-renowned like for how much idolatry there was. It was just, uh, it was totally permeated every facet of culture. And the church in Corinth was asking big questions like, what do we do if we're having a meal with someone who, who sacrificed their food to idols? Or what do we do if someone's selling meat and we think it's sacrificed to idols? And, and we would all agree in this room that idol worship is bad if you, if you grew up reading the Bible, but uh, the, the church in Corinth is asking Paul these questions and this is how he answers them. And this is uh, the message paraphrased by Eugene Peterson, but it, it just articulates it so well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, it says, looking at it one way, You could say anything goes because of God's immense generosity and grace. We don't have to dissect and scrutinize every action to see if it will pass muster. Now, Paul here uh, is actually quoting a famous Greek and Corinthians expression, like where he says, uh, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. They would have said it as a, a license to do whatever they wanted. Now, Paul is both criticizing it and using their expression, their idiom. He's saying, hey, you guys say this all the time. Let me show you uh, what it looks like to live out this way uh, through the lens of Jesus. But the point is not just to get by. We want to live well, but our foremost effort should be to help others live well. Meaning the main goal of a follower of Jesus is not just to live out our own freedoms, but to leverage every gift, freedom, resource we've been given to help benefit the community uh, and people around us, to help others live well. Verse 25, with that as the base to work from, common sense can take you the rest of the way. Eat anything sold at the butcher shop, for instance. You don't have to run an idolatry test. On every item, the earth, after all, is God's, and everything in it, meaning even a piece of meat sacrificed to a false god, God is able to redeem. Fascinating. Notice here that everything certainly includes the leg of lamb in the butcher shop. If a non-believer invites you to dinner and you feel like going, go ahead and enjoy yourself. Eat everything placed before you. It would be both bad manners and bad spirituality to cross-examine your host on the ethical purity of each course as it is served. Meaning here that we all agree idol worship is bad, but for the sake of the gospel, if it's able to build a bridge and, and, and you're able to display the truth of the gospel in that connection, build that bridge. It's a higher value. On the other hand, if he goes out of his way to tell you that this or that was sacrificed to God or God is so-and-so, you should pass. Even though you may be indifferent to where it came from, he isn't. And you don't want to send mixed messages to him about who you are worshiping. So notice that except for these special cases in verse 29, I'm not going to walk around on eggshells. I think one of the things that particularly in the last 100 years, but probably more so the last 50, the evangelical American church has walked around on eggshells and lived out a posture of fear far more than building bridges, excuse me. I'm not going to walk around on eggshells worrying about what small-minded people might say. I'm going to stride free and easy knowing what our large-minded master has already said, that if I eat what is served to me, grateful to God for what is on the table, how can I worry about what someone will say? I thanked God for it. And notice here, this is the important part. And he, being God, blessed it. Paul here is giving in real time this, this exact truth that any symbol, picture, uh, anything we par- interact with in the world that doesn't know Jesus can be redeemed for conversation, worship, build, building bridges, and much more. And God will bless it if our heart is oriented towards him. So in verse 31, so eat your meals heartily, not worrying about what others say about you. You're eating to God's glory, even this meat sacrifice to idols not to please them. As a matter of fact, do everything that way, heartily and freely to God's glory. At the same time, don't be callous in your exercise of freedom, thoughtlessly stepping on the toes of those who aren't as free as you are. And I feel like that expression right there is the other description of the American church in the last 50 years. We have either A, walked on eggshells, or B, stepped on everyone's toes. And the truth is, is notice here, And verse 33, I try my best to be considerate of everyone's feelings in all these matters. I hope you will be too. Paul has just laid out this paradigm in action. And this is something, by the way, that for centuries and millennia, the church was incredibly gifted at was looking at the things of culture, looking at their pictures and saying, what do these pictures point to? What's the deep longing that this is trying to express? And how can I connect it to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And how can I live it out? And so, like I said, the the 21st century American church has lost this ability and this gifting and it's something we feel like, man, how powerful would it be to look at our culture and say, what are the longings? And what pictures are created to represent those longings? And how can we use them to point people back to Jesus? So we're going we're gonna to operate out, we're going to live out this paradigm in real time today. We're going to look at a symbol that historically has no connections to the church or Christianity. And we're going to point to how uh, this icon points to something fundamentally deeper than the picture and how we can point people to Jesus. So we're going to do it together, okay? We're going to walk through it. Uh, the, the icon we're looking at today is the pumpkin. Now, uh, many of us uh, ruined our favorite shoes at the pumpkin patch this year, right? I don't know about you, but uh, you may be be thinking to yourself, why are we going to spend this time talking about a a vegetable? But have you ever wondered uh, why this squash became emblematic and basically the main picture for all of the fall season? Have you ever wondered? You know what's interesting is, uh, some of you, when you look at that pumpkin, you might say, I'm thinking of a pumpkin spice latte, (laughs) which I would say is uh, an overrated coffee drink. (laughs) Uh, Some of you might be thinking, oh, when I think of a pumpkin, I think of pumpkin pie. And I wanna tell you, it's an overrated, mediocre pie. (laughs) See, here's my thing with pumpkin pie. I want to get more mileage out of my teeth. You know, when I need to eat mushed-up food, I will. But for now, I need a pie with a little bit more substance. Okay? <laughs> so give me an apple pie. Uh, maybe some of you think of the jack-o'-lantern, right? Which most of us don't know the origin, but is connected to Scottish and Irish folk tales. And and I think something uh, that's interesting to me is many of us will dismiss this picture of the pumpkin because we attach it to Samhain and, and you know, some pagan rituals. But the thing about it is, is the church uh, centuries ago even tried to enter into this dialogue. And it's why they, they, they celebrated All Saints Day uh, around this pagan holiday, because it was trying to enter into a conversation. It was trying to say, hey, how can the things that this holiday longs for, how can we point it back to Jesus? but not you know diving too far into that rabbit trail uh, in order to understand what did this symbol represent we need to ask the question what did the pumpkin represent to the people 500 years ago what it it became what it is today after centuries but why what did it mean to someone all that time ago now, many of us here, um, we have m- more than enough food in our pantries and in our fridge. And, and I do want to highlight, by the way, there's, there are people in this room and online who don't. Um, Clark County, actually one in five people in our county will experience food insecurity this year. And so it is a reality that we're kind of, we can become oblivious to. Uh, and I just want to tell you, if you're one of the one in five, uh, we see you. Like I've been there. As a kid growing up and and looking in bare cabinets and empty refrigerators and saying, where's food going to come from? We see you. But for the four out of the five of us, many of us, uh, food insecurity is something we'll never know. But 500 years ago, you're talking about people who experienced famine on on a regular basis, who were no strangers to people who were dying of starvation around them. And could you imagine people who are escaping famine and poverty and persecution and they come to this new world and next thing you know, they see something that grows in abundance, that they see something that's hardy and versatile. Like, I don't know about you guys, but there is like a hundred different ways you can utilize a pumpkin. And, And in its durability, it represented something really profound to people 500 years ago. As a matter of fact, just to speak to its durability, Have you ever tried to saw into a pumpkin? I used a sawzall this year for my pumpkin. (laughs) But man, to ancient people who were in constant fear and worry of where is food gonna come from, the pumpkin represented the time of the year where you did not have to worry anymore. It represented this concept of abundance. Abundance. It became this beautiful pillar. It became this beautiful picture of this truth that, man, finally abundance has come. And while the pumpkin has never been a Christian symbol or a church-based symbol, abundance is a core biblical concept. The Bible talks a lot about abundance. And the interesting thing is this abundance is an incredibly profound way of life when you, you and I actually live in it. Uh, You know, the interesting thing is, is you can always tell when someone uh, is not living in abundance or when they feel like they don't have abundance because uh, the, the, the way that they think their paradigm is that of worry, anxiety. And I don't know about you, we may not worry about where our food's coming from, but the rates of anxiety in teenagers has tripled since 2020. We have a culture that does live in light of the fact that they don't feel like they have abundance. And so I wanna tell you that although the pumpkin may not represent it to us, the need for abundance is still there. People are still looking for a life of abundance. The Bible talks actually a lot about this. Do you know that there were three different feasts in the Torah that were meant to celebrate this abundance? You had the the feast of tents or booths that were looking back to when God provided abundance by raining down bread and quail and all this stuff in the wilderness, uh, you have the feast of first fruits, which represented the, the truth that God has begun to provide abundance, and He's gonna He's gonna bring the rest of it. And you have the feast of the harvest, celebrating in this moment. Look at the fullness that God has brought to us. All these were designed to help us recognize that abundance is found in and sourced through God. And I think for you and me, we have abundance, but we forgot that it was always sourced in God that everything you have and everything that you are and everything that I have and everything that I am is sourced in God. And let me tell you what happens when our abundance, we, we just view it like a right, like we're just given it and we earned it. Uh, abundance will mutate into indulgence. Our abundance will mutate into indul- indulgence. We, we, we want more and more and more and to help me feel good and to obtain more. And then our indulgence will lead to hoarding we become like my three-year-old who snatches the toy even though there's a, a big old bin of barbies in the back she snatches the toy from her little sister and says mine and then our hoarding will ultimately lead to scarcity that there's not enough and so i need to take from everyone else and we create this culture of fear that's that's linked to the fact that there will not be and never has been enough but in god god's never been a resource scarce There's an abundance of God and what he's able to do and fill in our lives. And so when we source abundance in God, our two realities become these things. One, we become grateful. Our life is full of gratitude. And then secondly, we become generous. So gratitude and generosity become our realities instead of indulgence and scarcity. And so I wanna dive into this because I think Jesus has a lot to teach us about abundance sourced in him. Not sourced in, in in our own ability to provide or our own ability to work hard, but in an abundant life that only he can offer. Aaron Straza has this great quote where it said, the abundant life Jesus spoke of isn't opposed to the material, but it consists of more than just the material. Meaning when I say abundance, many of us are going to think just simply about our, the bottom line in our bank account or how much stuff we have. But the thing about it is, is the abundance Jesus offers us, Jesus has abundance for everyone here. It just may look a little different. For some of us, we have a unique gift set to to obtain and utilize resources. For some of us here, you have an abundance in relationships and connections and your ability to build authentic community. For some of us here, we have an abundance in our health that we look around at our peers and say, oh man, they're getting sick left and right and I, I'm standing up tall. For some of us here, our abundance will look different than our neighbor, but the point is, is God offers an abundance and it's, all, it's not always material. And few places will, will explain uh, how Jesus taught about abundance more than Mark chapter six. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there because Jesus is going to teach about this abundance we all long for by actually teaching the 12 guys who followed him the most closely. And we see it in verse 30 of Mark chapter 6, where it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Now, Uh, Jesus has just sent out uh, the 12 disciples in pairs. They're teaching about God's kingdom. They're teaching about, uh, man, the kingdom of God is here and it's advancing and all of these powerful truths. And so they come back to Jesus encouraged because they see examples of where God's working. And in verse 31, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, uh, quick question here: um, This word for desolate place—it's uh, interesting because the Greek word there is the same exact word for Jesus when he goes into the desert to be tempted by the devil before he launches into his ministry. Jesus goes. Jesus is taking them to the desolate place. He's taking them to the wilderness. And the interesting thing is, is many of us think abundance is only found in the gardens and the vineyards, and oftentimes Jesus will lead you to the desolate place to teach you what real abundance is, to teach you about the abundance that only he can give. And if you're like me, you want to go to the gardens and the vineyards. It's more comfortable. I, I, it's easy. It's easy. It's predictable. But God more often than not will say, I can only teach you about true abundance. If you go with me to the desolate place, if you go with me to the wilderness. And so I want to ask you, just as we're launching in today, uh, most of us here have our desolate place, we have a part of our world that represents the wilderness. It represents the, the dry parts of our soul, the dry parts of our experience. And I want to ask you, where's your desolate place? Because you may not want to go there, but it might actually be Jesus who's leading you there. And it might be because it's there that he can teach you the abundance he can offer. Now, in verse 33, many of them, many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, uh, two things to note here. One, uh, you may be saying, well, he sailed ahead. Why were they able to reach him? And, and, you know, the Bible calls the body of water there on the Sea of Galilee. But nowadays it's just called Lake Knesseret. And it is like less than a third the size of Lake Tahoe. Uh, there, it is. It is a lake. Is what it is, and so you could see people sailing to and from across the lake. And so what they're doing is they're just sprinting around the perimeter of the lake to reach them before they reach the other side. Is what these people are doing. But what I want to highlight here is them showing up. This crowd showing up is inconvenient to Jesus and the disciples. They're tired. They're hungry. And I'm sure most of us, if we were Jesus and the disciples, we would say, send them away. And instead, Jesus' posture towards them is compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He, he ties in a, a, an icon that would be important to them. That they're, they're this animal that has no one to protect them no one to care for them, no one to lead them. And I think there's people in this room who you probably are coming back to church after a long time, or maybe for you, you feel like you're too far gone, you've messed up too much, you've spun in a cycle for too long, that there's no redeeming you. And you're here, but you feel like God has to ignore you, or you're too inconvenient to him, or your problems are too heavy for him. And I don't know why, but I I feel the need to tell you this. God, Jesus has the same exact perspective of you that he does of them. That when he sees you, his heart and his face is one of compassion. I had a lady one time, because through my own trauma and through a lot of uh, the lessons life had taught me, um, when I first became a follower of Jesus, I oftentimes would believe the lie that God can't and he won't. That if God can't and he won't, he can't fix my problems, and if he could, he wouldn't because I'm me. And I had this lady who looked at me straight in the eyes. It was beautiful. She said, Joe you are God's favorite. I'm like, God doesn't show favorites. There's 8 billion people on this planet, no way. And she said, Joe, you are God's favorite, I'm serious. She said, we worship an infinite God. There is enough of him for you to be his favorite and for all other 8 billion people on this planet to be his favorite. And also there's still enough of him, an abundance of him left over still and you are his favorite. And if you're in here today and you're like, man, I'm I'm sprinting after Jesus, but also it's an inconvenient time and I'm too inconvenient. I hope the only thing you walk away with today is is that you are his favorite. And he wants to be your shepherd. He continues and he teaches them many things. Uh, uh, in verse 35, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate or wilderness place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy something to eat. Their point here is, is there's no food around. Send them back to the towns to go buy their own food. It's too late at this point. And again, Jesus has compassion on them and is also trying to show the disciples the truth of His abundance. But he answered them in verse 37, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread to give, uh, to give it to them to eat? What, one thing to highlight here is a denarius was a day's wage. So basically they're like, it's going to cost 200, 200 days of labor for all 12 of us to work just to provide these people with enough food. We don't have 200 days. We don't have two thirds of our yearly salary right now pulled up for us all to go buy these people food, Jesus. You're being ridiculous. And this is one of those instances where I think we all have in our walk with Jesus, if you followed him for any length of time, where he asks you to do something a little bit crazy and you, you kind of have to respond to him like he's being dumb, right? I don't know if you've ever had that moment, <laughs> but you're like, God, you want me to go talk to that person? That person's terrifying. Are you, You're serious? God's like, yeah, I need you to trust me. And this is that scenario. But notice Jesus's response to their question because he knows what they're going to ask. He knows, Jesus, we don't have enough. And his response is, notice here, in verse 38, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five loaves and two fish. Now, many of us know the ending of the story, but I just wanna, I wanna pause here for a second and just highlight a truth. Jesus knows what it's gonna take to feed these people and so do the disciples, but what do the disciples focus on? What's their attention pointed towards? What they don't have, what they lack. They see their scarcity and Jesus always begins with them with what they do have. Jesus knows what you have. Jesus knows what you've been blessed with. Jesus knows what you've been given. And and the point here is that the abundant living doesn't start with what you don't have. It begins with what you do, what you have been given, what you have been blessed with. And Jesus is leading the disciples to this desolate place where they can't rely on any other outside resources to just highlight the truth. What do you have? What have you been given? Let's start there. And I think one of the, the, the terrible things about our culture is we have a negativity bias. We start with what we don't have. We're always focused on what we're lacking, but not with what we're blessed with. But Jesus is only asking you to steward what you have, not with what you don't. And when we get to heaven, Jesus is not going to ask you, why didn't you obtain more? He's going to ask you, what did you do with what you were given? George Herbert has this great quote where he says, if I have but enough for myself and my family, I am a steward only for myself and them. If I have more, I am but a steward of that abundance for others. And I love that word steward, because what it means is you and I are not the owners of our stuff, our family, our gifts. Everything we have and everything we are is from the Lord. And our chief job is to steward it for the blessings of his kingdom and the blessings of the community around us. And so Jesus never starts with what you don't have. He always starts with what you do. And so that's what they're doing. They find out they have five loaves and two fish. And then he commanded them to sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to them, to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Now what's interesting is can you think of another story in the Bible where thousands of people are in the wilderness and they're wondering where their meal is going to come from? Yeah, there's another famous story where God can literally bring down bread from the heavens, from the sky, and feed all these people. And the beautiful thing here is Jesus could have easily done that. But he doesn't. He starts with the moldy old bread they were able to collect. Why? Jesus wasn't like, oh, you just showed up with wonder bread. I wanted marbled rye. He doesn't doesn't say that. Because I think he would rather, he, he finds much more joy and satisfaction multiplying what you have than just raining down what he, does, what he can bring. He wants to transform and multiply out of your life to provide abundance vastly more than he wants to just bring out of nothing. Because then you and I are a part of the movement of his kingdom. And that's what's beautiful here is, is he's setting them down in groups. And you might think, He's, gonna, he's just gonna rain down bread from the sky, but instead he utilizes what they have and they start dividing the, the food amongst all of them. But one thing I do wanna highlight here is notice these five verbs that's used. Notice there he took, uh, that's the first one. When, he take, when he's taken the bread and he, notice here, it, 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 Henry and highlights the truth that it's not just that he took, but that he chose. He doesn't want different bread, he wants your bread. He wants what you bring to the table. There is 8 billion people on this planet, but there's only you. You are the only version of you that has ever or will ever exist in all the cosmos and all of human history. It is just you. And you can show something about the truth of Jesus more than anyone else can. That the people in your life can only know that part of Jesus by knowing you. And so he chose that bread and he chooses you. And then notice there, he looks up to heaven, meaning he's not just, uh, he's looking up to heaven to thank God. He's not just, uh, I'll settling. He's not settling just for this bread. He's grateful for it, and he's not just settling with using you, he's thankful to the Father for you. And notice there, he blessed meaning uh, a blessing in Jewish culture was a way to thank God, but also was to call out good. Father, will you bless them? Will you bring about ultimate good for them? And then notice here, he broke. He broke. And the interesting thing here about breaking is many of us don't uh, attach breaking with growth, but man, every cell needs to be broken down into two in order to divide. And maybe the abundance God has for your life must start with being broken. (laughs) Maybe he must break down what was already there in order to make more. And then lastly, he gave. You may not realize this, but these were the same five verbs that Jesus used when he instituted communion at the Lord's Supper. It was the same exact process, meaning that at the moment of his ultimate sacrifice, he instituted a meal that meant to show his unconditional loving abundance. But even in this meal, showing the disciples he's gonna sanctify and utilize everything for that abundance. It's all rooted in God's heart of abundance, whether it's the cross or the meal we offer. I notice here in verse 42, and they all ate and were satisfied. And when they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the five loaves were 5,000 men. Meaning uh, that's not including the women and children. There's thousands of people here and there's 12 baskets full. Now, let's go back to the beginning of the story. How many disciples were there? And how many of those disciples were doubting whether Jesus could provide anything and were telling him, hey, let's send all the people away? 12, and this is Jesus's cheeky, kind of a little bit sassy way of teaching them. All 12 of you doubted and look at, there's a basket full for every one of you. And I wonder how many of us have been asking for God's abundance, saying, God, when are you gonna show up? And how many of us have a basket full off to the side somewhere? Of God saying, I'll show up, trust me, I'll I'll be there. I got this. And yet we're like, Jesus, when are you going to show up? And, and whatever that basketful in your life is, I wonder how many of us have that basketful somewhere in our lives that's just sitting off to the side as a reminder of God being like, yep, I can do all this and more. But I think this is the abundance people are longing for. But it's got to start, I wonder, with the, like the disciples, us who show up to a Jesus who just asks not what we don't have and doesn't just focus on the problem, but focuses on what we do have and how he wants to partner with us in the movement of his kingdom. Uh, One of my favorite quotes is this, that there are three keys to more abundant living, caring about others, daring for others, sharing with others. Uh, The caring for others, meaning the, the the people that God has put in our orbit do we care about their well-being and their good, or like the disciples, do we just want to send them away? They're inconvenient, they're distracting, or or what about the daring for others? There are some people in this room that came to church just for the tune-up in your own faith, but many of us there's someone down the aisle from us whose faith is is dangling by a thread, whose life is falling apart. And part of our abundant living is to say, I'm in a season of thriving, and I'm meant to aim that thriving towards you. And lastly, sharing with others, that if you've been blessed with more than you need, part of your job is to spill over that blessing into the people around you to show the God who is abundant. I've seen this kind of abundance actually most clearly in the place you would least expect. I actually saw it on Halloween. It was really remarkable. Uh, My family and I, uh, we did a group costume and went trick-or-treating, this is us. Uh, I don't know. um, (laughs) uh, My um, two things, one, uh, I know what you guys are thinking. That is a much better look for you, Joe, than what you're wearing right now. (laughs) No, Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But um, my my three-year-old daughter, Rory, she wanted to be Belle, and she asked me to be the beast. And she asked me to be her beast. And I just like, yeah, like the moment she asked me that, she probably could have asked me for anything. (laughs) I was like, of course I'll do it. My wife, Rachel, is uh, Mrs. Potts, and my youngest Haven is Chip. And one thing that was interesting is my oldest, Rory, is now at the age where she's old enough to like, like recognize the beauty of these moments, and it's really fun as a parent to see it through her eyes. And something interesting happened because she would just sprint on ahead of us and sprint down the road, so excited to knock on a neighbor's door, ring their doorbell. And next thing you know, her, her smile was like gleaming. And you know what was interesting is I realized what she was experiencing. It was the one time in the entire world where she could knock on a stranger's house and know that a stranger would open the door with a huge smile on their face and willing to share their abundance with her. The one time of the year. The, the, the day that many of us have called the darkest day in the year, and maybe rightfully so, but that one day is the only day in all the year where strangers knock on each other's houses and experience generosity and abundance and kindness. It's the one day where a stranger's not sent away. And I wonder if what my daughter was experiencing is a reality she longs for in the kingdom an abundance that I wonder if God is asking us to become an icon of, that kind of abundance where a stranger can knock on our door. And instead of being treated as an inconvenience, we respond with a smile and with our abundance. I wonder if people outside of this community experience that from us on a regular basis, how much more our world would look like the kingdom Jesus is bringing. And it is ironic to me that that day is not Christmas where most of our generosity is aimed towards our family or that day is not Thanksgiving where most of our generosity is aimed towards our family. That day is Halloween. (laughs) And so I wanna tell you that our culture and our world needs that generosity. They need that abundance. They need to see it. And the pumpkin won't cut it anymore. The lattes are too overrated. <laughs> I wonder if they need to see it in us. Cause then they'll see Jesus. So what do you mind closing your eyes with me just in closing today? And I want you, if you would be willing to indulge me, I want you to visualize in your mind's eye, uh, whatever the desolate place you're in is right now. It could be uh, your medical diagnosis and the prognosis and what it's gonna to take to get well. It could be uh, you, you see your bank account when you log on to the app and that place represents your desolate place. It could be the home life you're in. It could be the calendar reminder of your marriage counseling that's coming up. It could be a job that you despise. But I want you to visualize that you are in that desolate place. And just while they're in your mind's eye, I want you to ask Jesus, if you will, Jesus, what abundance do you want to show me here? What do you want to show me here? Father, I wanna say thank you. Thank you for that reminder that you lead us into the wilderness, not to, not to hurt us, but to show us that we can't trust anything that we can conjure up more than you. As a reminder that you are the God of a truer abundance, a, a kind of abundance that, that is kingdom minded that leads us to generosity and gratitude. And I wanna apologize God for most of my life, I believe you can't or you won't. And I know there's people in this room Lord who, who feel the same way that, that we live out most of our lives thinking that we're, we're just an accident in your, in your kingdom. God, would you like a wave overwhelm that lie to the point where we bow, not in fear, but in love. May you become immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And in doing so, Lord, would you change us enough to go out into our world to be immeasurably more than all they ask or imagine and to meet them in the gap where life feels scarce. Lord, we love you. We thank you uh, that you are working, you are moving your kingdom forward. And may you continue to show your abundance in and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we want to say thanks so much for coming this week. Uh, we, we love you guys. I want to invite you back next week. Danny's going into the next uh, icon, and uh, we're looking forward to it, uh, journeying through it with you. Love you. See you then.